All right, welcome to Consuming You, episode six. My name is Logan, and once again, as always, I'm here with my friend Tim. Hey, folks. Yeah, Tim here. This week we read the archetype in dream symbolism. Yeah, I I was um, excited about this one even before reading it, just hearing the title. And I think you said something similar last uh, episode. And uh, and then as soon as I got into it too, because this is this is the stuff that Jung is generally known for, or at least one of the big things. Uh, when I started hearing about Jung, it was from Jordan Peterson, uh, and he was always talking about archetypes and Jung's archetypes or archetypes in the Jungian sense. So um, that was pretty exciting to start reading. Yeah, I was excited for that as well. Yeah, archetypes and the shadow, which we haven't talked about the shadow. Maybe we won't in this book, but I was really satisfied with the discussion on archetypes. It made, like going to the source material was so valuable because Jung explains it in just the simplest, and most eloquent way and i feel like i finally have a good grasp of what he's trying to say yeah how would you describe archetypes okay so um an archetype seems to be a it's something we inherit uh and i don't know if he really uses the word evolution but it, but he seems to be saying that way back in the prehistoric past and maybe evolutionary past our mind was shaped in the same way that an animal's instincts are shaped um and, uh, and so we have these sort of preformed con concepts in our heads um, that we could call archetypes. And so uh, he has a story, which we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk more about, of the little girl who has these dreams. And she's only eight years old. And, uh, and these dreams don't seem like dreams an eight-year-old would be having. And so he explains that by saying that we all sort of come pre-installed with these archetypes and they'll show up in our lives. Um, I think a great example, and this is another thing Jordan Peterson talks about a lot, is the archetype of the hero and the hero's journey. So, um, in fact, there's a series online. I don't know if you've seen this, Tim. Uh, it's Jordan Peterson looking at the the Lion King, the movie, and talking about mm -hmm. the hero's journey and, and all that. It's really fascinating. Lots of material. Anyway, you know, there's the the whole hero's journey and the the cycle of there's some disaster and the hero has to fight it and, and you know, and uh, saves his his um, tribe or whatever. And that's very much a hero's journey. And the hero is this archetype that we see again and again. Uh, so that's that would be how I would summarize it. That's yeah, I, I think he, he does actually talk about evolution, if I recall from this chapter. And that was a brand new idea to me that you could come into the world and have ideas that come through through genetics, not through mm. culture, but you have things, as in the case with the little girl, where she talks about things that she almost couldn't invent. They're so, there's a mark of genius about them that mm. would be impossible for a little girl. Not impossible, she had them, sure. um, but it didn't seem like she sat down to think them through and invent them, mm -hmm. but they came to her as a some kind of symbol from the unconscious and that right. Jung argues is just as reasonable or just as it's just as possible for us to have these symbols in our psyche as it is for our liver to evolve or our lungs to evolve we can also mm. have evolved i want to say i don't know if it's ideas is quite the word but i think symbols, symbols is probably is maybe right. that's pedantic but 
that that was quite surprising to me, but it really fits into what he's been saying all along. It would explain a lot of this psychology and would certainly explain this little girl's bizarre dreams because it's hard to imagine how else she could have had them unless that they were part of her all along, part of her genetics. It's hard to understand right. that she would, could have come by them culturally. Yeah. Yeah, like one, th one of her dreams, he said that uh, there's something about pagans being in heaven and then like angels doing good deeds in hell something like that and he's he mentions that that is sort of a, a ethical what did he say an ethical um relativism that's the word ethical relativism that he said that is uh that is worthy of um nietzsche is sort of how he put it and it's a yeah that's a good point because the dream does seem to clearly symbolize um some weird moral relativity and that uh, that, that that good and evil aren't so simple, and that's not something that you would expect from an eight-year-old, and certainly not ex that you wouldn't expect an eight-year-old to be able to construct such a poetic expression of that idea. So, um, yeah, it's, it's um, the dreams are so fascinating. Do you think it would be worth it to just read all twelve of the dreams that loud one by one? Sure. Yeah. Maybe we can, or we can alternate if you want, or I can just read them through. I have them in front of me. Why don't you read them through? Okay. So number one, and this is from a prepubescent girl. I think she's 12 years old and she presents these dreams to her father on Christmas. And she starts each one, each one with once upon a time. Yeah. And, and the as father a person, is just, so, so she expects him to, she, she clearly has some value and she, she feels some value in these dreams. Yeah. She right. She expects book. Right, right. She expects her father will be pleased by these, like this gift of her dreams. Which is, I mean, that's quite an artistic gift. But the father is is distraught at the the like the bizarre psychology he's seeing in his daughter, and so he consults Jung. And uh, this is the the dreams that Jung relates from the father from the girl. So, number one, <clears throat> the evil animal, a snake-like monster with many horns, kills and devours all other animals, but God comes from the four corners, being in fact four separate gods, and gives rebirth to all the dead animals. So, a, a snake-like monster with many horns, I mean, maybe I should just read these through, but that one was particularly interesting, and, and Yoon talks about how the four corners has been replaced by the Trinity in Christianity, but the four corners would have been more recognizable to people from the 1500s backwards or something like that. Right. He says that it's a, it's like one of those um, symbols that you see again and again, almost cross-culturally that, that, uh, well, again, it sort of brings you back to the, his explanation is that th they're pre-conscious, they come pre-installed in us. And that's how you can explain why, why, uh, yeah, he said that Christianity has sort of replaced it, but before that it was commonly, I don't know, encountered, I guess you could say. But yeah, just, yeah, but go on. Well, this one in particular is laden with so much symbolism. A snake-like monster with many horns. That doesn't exist in nature as far as I understand. So that's very mm. much a type of invented devil. It kills and devours all the animals, but then four separate gods come and give rebirth to all the dead animals. Like, what a strange right. twist on the sort of, like, death and rebirth. Mm. But let's not linger. I'll just move on. So... The second dream, this is the one that would have been, a, we could easily have imagined would come from, from Nietzsche. And it goes like this. An ascent into heaven where pagan dances are being celebrated and a descent into hell 
where angels are doing good deeds. Hmm. Yeah. Number three, a horde of small animals frightens the dreamer. The animals increase tremendous size and one of them devours the little girl. Number four, a small mouse is penetrated by worms, snakes, fishes, and human beings. Thus, the mouse becomes human. This portrays the four stages of the origin of mankind. Which, by the way, this is now me talking. It's never explained, I think, the origins, the four stages of the origin of mankind. That's left up to the reader to look yeah. up. I still actually don't know. I wish I had looked it up. Hmm. Number five. A drop of water is seen as it appears when looking when looked at through a microscope. The girl sees the drop is full of tree branches. This portrays the origin of the world. Number six. A bad boy has a clod of earth and throws bits of it at everyone who passes. In this way, all the passerbys become bad. Number seven. A drunken woman falls into the water and comes out renewed and sober. Number eight. The scene is in America where many people are rolling on an ant heap attacked by the ants. The dreamer, in a panic, falls into a river. Number nine. There is a desert on the moon where the dreamer sinks so deeply into the ground that she reaches hell. Number 10. In this dream, the girl has a vision of a luminous ball. She touches it. Vapors emanate from it. A man comes and kills her. Number 11. The girl dreams she is dangerously ill. Suddenly birds come out of her skin and cover her completely. Number 12. Swarms of gnats obscure the sun, the moon, and all the stars except one. That one star falls upon the dreamer. That is, I I was almost shocked by reading these because they're so psychologically disturbing. And just the bizarreness of, of the girl thinking that this would please her father as a Christmas gift. It's, mm. It was all so, so bizarre. And just the mark of genius. Um, mm. But I'll let you react to it as well. Yeah, well, and, and maybe a bit more context in there is that they each began with Once Upon a Time. So uh, so I think part of it that maybe softens kind of the, the shock of it is that she was telling these as fairy tales. She viewed them as fairy tales. And, you know, fairy tales are can be a bit bizarre. And so some of how you maybe could explain this is that she could have absorbed some of the feel of like how fairy tales go. And then so she had these dreams and she sort of formulated them as fairy tales. But yeah, just um, they they all have a peculiar character to them. They're all quite dark and they're dealing with these. It seems like they're all hinting at these poetic um, or hinting at philosophical themes in poetic ways, which is in, in ways that, yeah, you just wouldn't uh, expect from an eight year old girl. And so, yeah, you explains all those as um, as as. Uh, he, to him, the only reasonable explanation is that we come pre-installed with these sorts of concepts, uh, these archetypes, as he'd call them. That could be the only explanation for how she could dream up such things. Mm. And he talks about in this chapter how many other people had these strange, psychologically disturbing dreams and would come to him and describe these monsters or scenes and then he would pull out a book and say, oh, this is what you dreamed. He would show them like an ancient carving or, or a statue or something like that. And they would calm down because they would recognize that someone else had already seen this before hundreds of years ago. That mm. a calming effect. Yeah. And I, I 
he didn't really spell this out, but it seems his point is that they they would have an image that they couldn't explain. It didn't seem to come from anywhere. So they would be worried, like, am I insane? And of course, that would be a bit scary to have a vision that seemed to have no source. I mean, that is quite, uh, that would shake you. And so I guess the comforting thing would be that you says, no, no, it's look, this is just what it, this is part of what it means to be human. And then you'd be like, oh, okay, well, and he'd, he'd literally be showing you pictures of, of people um, expressing this symbolism before. And, and so you'd see, okay, it's not just me going crazy. It's just kind of, Part of the human brain uh, all that i don't know if he really explained that fully to the people but mm-hmm. but that makes sense yes to why that would calm people down mm-hmm. when they saw they recognized it in, in another culture yeah. and it you know i love how he keeps tying this back into what he's established before so he ta- talks at the beginning of this chapter of how the unconscious is, is compensating for what your consciousness misses and it does that through dreams and it uses these poetic archetypes to do so and out of that you can have predictions of the future and i think the idea goes something like this is that he he talks about how our psyche is composed of at least partly the conscious and the unconscious the conscious Mm. can only see a a certain amount of things at once what's in its Mm. vision it can maybe can have one thought at a time Whereas the unconscious is is seeing everything. Everything is coming into the brain. It's it's set somewhere and the unconscious can access that database. And so it has the ability to notice things that are a little bit off. So for instance, you might have dreams of some kind of disaster, perhaps. This is just my own example of, of how I think it works, of something bad happening, something breaking. And then a month later, one of your a vase or a jug falls over from where it's sitting on a shelf. And probably you didn't notice consciously, but something had changed so that the table was degrading or that the jar, the, the vase was, was sort of leaning a little bit more than it should. Mm-hmm. And you're un, but you're unconscious. Hey, that's not normal. The vase should be like, you know, flat on the table, but I can see that it's kind of not mm-hmm. stable. And then eventually it breaks and falls. And I think that's, um, how the, the basic pattern is you you're actually able to see all these things your mind is able to warn you of danger and so in that way it allows you to predict the future prognosticate the future so right. does that sound about right to you yeah it does i think that's a really good way to put it and then he also layers on top of that the the this idea that we've inherited some structure of the subconscious and we're sort of almost primed to think in certain ways and so for me a connection that just happened as you were talking was that probably also not only do we have this unconscious that can process things in certain ways although he does make the point that you it's not a logical processing it's it's more intuitive than that um but not only that but you but it's a machine that has been evolved you know through evolution um including you know, we're, we're humans and we live within a culture. And so you might have a vision or a dream where, uh, you know, maybe in ancient times, like, okay, here's a hypothetical example. If there could have been a, a, a Roman who had uh, apparently future telling dreams about the collapse of Rome, and you could explain that partially because his subconscious is knowing, noticing things that are off, but also partially because we've evolved in um, an environment where you're in a culture and that culture can collapse and there's probably different signs. Um, so 
Yeah, that um, it's quite amazing. It paints the unconscious as a very powerful agent because you have a processing power that you're not even aware of that's vast in some sense. And then also it's been shaped by evolution to, 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 um, I don't know, react to certain events that we're likely to experience being humans or to even just being animals for that matter. Yeah. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the, on the Roman example? Did that come from the book or is that no, your no. own? Yeah. So I'm just saying, yeah. Okay. Just to general to generalize it, you know, um, we if there's some disastrous event going on or going to go on, and you and you have a dream about it, and it ends up being um, somehow spookily, you know, it could it like you dreamed this. How do you, how could you have known? You know, maybe part of the answer is that your unconscious is just good at processing things that you don't fully, uh, you don't, you're not conscious of. But also it could be that the unconscious has been, is a machine shaped by evolution and it knows how to deal with the, you know, the context that we're in. So culture or just being an animal on planet Earth, etc. Right, right. The, the, the crazy thing about it is you can predict the future and that's a way that it would be immediately useful to anybody if they could have the ability to interpret their dreams, which seems to require an understanding of archetypes. It seems to require that you have some ability to think poetically, but then translate that into reality. Hmm. In the case of the little girl, Jung was able to predict her death. He said, this girl should not be having, this is, these would dreams would be not unusual for a very old person, hmm. but for a girl that has not yet gone through puberty. These are very unusual. He talks about, I, I mentioned puberty because he talks about there are certain dreams you would expect with puberty as well hmm. um, that, you know, would be normal for a girl but uh, of her age, but certainly not with uh, that much death overtone. And hmm. in the story, Jung doesn't actually warn uh, the, the girl's daughter, but she does end up dying about a year after that Christmas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that sense, you know, it seemed like her body, what or what was her unconscious other was compensating for something. Her unconsciousness were telling you're going to die. Here's preparation for that. Mm. You know, it kind of. I I've never heard someone describe preparation for death like that, but it just seems like I probably wouldn't in our culture. We don't talk about our dreams very much. It's mm. we've talked about this before. It's somehow rude. Perhaps we've lost some poetry in our lives that the, the ancient people had. We're so used to things or, being rational. Yeah. Or romanticism would maybe be a good way to capture what, what we've lost. You know, we were expected to be so logical and, and brass tacks and, uh, you know, um, down to business. And um, there's room for poetry and art in our lives, but maybe not so much for most people. It's like, you got to be an artist or you got to be a poet for that to be, a, for that to be, so easily acceptable. Whereas, yeah, maybe in the past it was just easier to be like, I had this dream, so we should probably move because I dreamed that this city was going to burn down, whatever, you know. Um, yeah, there's just not a lot of room in our lives to take dreams seriously, as we've talked about before in our modern lives. Well, what do you think of this idea, um, the idea that you describes later that these stories which we hear, like, for instance, the story of Christ and Christ being 
the archetype of the hero. I think if I, if I remember correctly, hero archetype is someone that is devoured by a monster, but then overcomes the monster, slays it, and becomes more powerful. You learn something that makes him more powerful as a result. And the story of Jesus Christ is an archetype like that. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think of the idea of these stories not being invented by priests? So Jung talks about how the common man thinks that uh, it is commonly assumed that these myth- mythological ideas were invented by a priest or a philosopher, and then they were believed by credulous and uncritical people right. and that these philosophers or priests were just trying to increase their status or were deranged or, but they invented this hmm. but Jung says no no even the word invent means to find and these people maybe there was a first person that that articulated the story but they just found something that was in our collective uh, psyche or collective um I guess psyche is the best word. I was going to say unconsciousness, but I think psyche captures it more. Hmm. How, how do you feel about that idea? Yeah, it rings true for me. Um, I it gets it gets back to this idea of there's that we have this historical or um, this evolutionarily designed structure of our heads, or not even evolution, it, it, but it's almost if we could just say prehistoric, then we. You know, there's a time before and after we really started talking about things and reflecting on things. You know, we reflect we reflect on things now being modern humans, but but the, all the other great apes don't. And so there was a transition period there. And and the way I understand this and the way it rings true for me is that we were doing things before we could explain why we do them. And as we began to explain why we did stuff, um, it just it just seems. I can't explain exactly how, but it seems to ring true that yeah, we would we would start describing things mythically um, in terms of heroes, and the hero myth would already have been formed by the time we're talking about it. So nobody really created it; it just kind of um, evolved in the culture. Maybe maybe it was more of a cultural evolution, uh, but it would but it was still pre. You know, we didn't sit there and devise it. It sort of was there by the time we um, could could put it to any words. That seems true to me. I put a lot of, I don't know, put a lot of faith in that at this point. It it must be true. It must, if you, there must have been heroes before there was an ability to articulate the idea of a hero. Right, for sure. But what's interesting is why was that meme, you know, why was that repeated idea something that got coded into our genetics? It must have been useful in some way, or at least must have mm. helped pass on genes. Why did archetypes, you know, maybe that's just kind of a freeloader. It just, that's just happened to be the case. But I wonder if these, these archetypes are useful in some way uh, that would explain their, their evolutionary course. Yeah, I think they must be. And like, just to take the hero myth, you know, if, if we're looking at two societies and one is genetically predetermined to see things in a hero narrative and, and then they, let's say they go to war, if you have a society that understands the concept of a hero, then that's a society that will actually have heroes in a more real way than the other one. And you would have, you know, war generals, or even if it's not about war at all, but let's say you're in a valley somewhere and the, and the food's drying up. And I think I'm, I'm getting this 
example vaguely from Jordan Peterson. I don't know why it's coming up so much this episode, but um, you know, if you are in a valley and the food's running out and you need to make a decision to leave to go somewhere else, you have to leave your home and everything you've known and you have to lead your people. If, you, if there's a hero myth floating around, that's going to be easier because you can be like, okay, we need a hero. And then somebody will step up to be the hero. They'll understand how to do it. People will feel inspired and they'll know the story and they'll know that there could be, you know, um, salvation in the form of this hero. So that seems already like that would be a, a, just a useful concept to have. So useful that it would maybe just evolve. You know, we we were social creatures in tribes for so long, long enough for something to evolve. And if it's if we're evolving for social reasons, then it would make sense that the evolution would happen in our mental predispos uh, predispositions. So that's how I would sort of connect that. That makes sense to me. I, I would uh, I would buy that story. Nice. Well, I'm selling it for five ninety nine. I'm only willing to pay five ninety eight. <laughs> well, no deal. Um, no deal, Howie. Uh, I'm, there's something on the tip of my mind, but after I did that joke, I forgot it. Oh no! Worth the joke. Oh jeez. <laughs> I I did want to unpack maybe a little bit the idea that 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 you were describing that there's a natural order to these things if you understand evolutionary biology and, and one would expect that the body came before the mind that there was mm. action by a body before there was a mind controlling it and that probably feelings came before thoughts mm. you know, we very much live in the world of thoughts in the 21st century well certainly we live in feelings perhaps more so but we like to describe our behavior in terms of our rationality oh i got up to get a glass of water yeah, now, we don't normally describe it as a feeling. I had thirst, mm. or even something more primitive than that. Uh, but it's just inevitable that that there's a structure to this, and just it seems to me rationally, if I may use my rationality, if that's okay with you, mm -hmm. uh, that there's a sort of power structure to that. So perhaps the body is more powerful than the mind, or being more primitive. Uh, it has kind of more influence, just like there, we think of the brain, we think of the stem being reptilian, and then mm -hmm. the later parts, the, uh, uh, help me out here, what's the, like, the last a, layer of the a, brain? The last, well, there's the frontal cortex, and then there's the prefrontal cortex. Yeah. I don't know if that's what you're getting at. I think, well, there's also like a growth on the very, the full top layer of the brain where it becomes like um, kind of soggy looking. <laughs> Maybe that's just the prefrontal cortex, but I think of that as just the front part, the, the neocortex, actually. Yeah, I think uh, there's the cortex and the neocortex. Yes. The prefrontal cortex is part of that. Mm. Anyways, all that stuff aside, it just seems like you have the structure which may have more influence uh, the, the deeper it gets. Yeah. Do you think I've got anything useful there? Yeah, well, you know, one thing that came to mind right as you finished talking is like a heartbeat. And you cannot stop your heart from beating through any mental will at all. So, and you know, that's very deep in, deep in, I don't know where it is, but certainly closer to the brainstem than the part of me that does algebra, you know, and uh, breathing is somewhere in the middle there. And um, people talk about losing control and it's always about instinctual stuff. You know, it's about the lizard brain stuff. So, uh, you know, you lose control and you, and you cheat or whatever, because you're overcome by lust. And that's, that's a clear demonstration that at least in that scenario, there 
your all of your rational modern man objective logic is it was just overpowered you know um so yeah that that makes that makes sense and i i do think it's more well i don't know i guess part of my reaction is that i think more powerful might be too simplistic but i do think there's truth in that idea that um maybe maybe a, a better way or a different well, the way i would say it is more that our unconscious or lower form of intelligence is more powerful than we give it credit for in the 21st century. I think that's entirely fair. You know, we kind of think of ourselves as logical creatures that kind of exist on top of this body that we control completely, but that more, the more time goes by, the more I think that that's completely wrong. Um, and so even if you couldn't say that the logic is less powerful than everything underneath it, I think you could certainly say that everything that's underneath the logic is extremely powerful and in many cases just is is a is completely um can completely overpower our logical selves or bypass it even yeah there's some there's some perfect articulation i think you're closer to it than i am but clearly like we're influenced by things we don't have the that are not part of our thoughts that are kind of deeper they come from the body they come from a part of us that's unconscious but they they influence our behavior and Jung talks about this in this chapter that there are people that are sometimes bewildered because they can't explain their behavior there's sometimes you do something and you actually your brain can't do the rationalization that's usually so good at as to mm. why you did a behavior which i think if i i understand correctly that that's a huge part of the brain is or the what the, the thoughts that we identify with is our brain rationalizing what we're doing even though it so it feels like we're thinking about doing something and doing something but perhaps it's more reasonable to say that we do something and then we rationalize our behavior to ourselves as we yeah. do it but we're just identified with thought but there comes times when people freak out because that part doesn't happen they just do something and they don't know why yeah 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 that's all good shit <laughs> <That's> <laughs> good <laughs> um let's see so okay so here's a concept that um he touched on very briefly um that i want to get your thoughts on so did you read the blank slate by stephen pinker no it's on my list okay so, and I think we've actually mentioned St uh, Stephen Pinker in a previous episode, but I will say once again, the best nonfiction writer I've ever read. But anyway, so um, Jung says uh, in a couple of different ways in this chapter that, or maybe it's just once, but he, he says that we are not born, there's like this common assumption that we're born as with, with nothing in our heads and that we are completely um, formed by the circumstances that that we go through. And that's a very, still a very popular idea today, actually, uh, especially with postmodernism and cultural determinism. Um, there's this very popular idea that the culture shapes you completely and there's nothing genetic about your psychology uh, and, and your psyche, I guess I'll say. Um, but he pushes back against that and he says it's, and, and really it's, he says that it's pretty um, absurd to suggest that our body parts would have evolved 
and will come preformed, but our minds would be totally blank slates. And uh, so that's that's an idea I very much buy into. And, and Steven Pinker wrote a whole book on this, and, and he's just basically saying, like, look, we're not a blank slate. Uh, he wrote another, another book called The Language Instinct, in which he makes a very, almost the same argument, but more specifically on language. And he makes, I, I think, very convincing argument that uh, our brains were built to already start to try to parse language in particular ways. It's not just that we hear words and then we kind of magically figure it out because we have a big mass of neurons that can magically figure stuff out. We actually try to decode language as young, you know, as children in particular preformed ways. So, um, yeah, anyway, that's just a connection that came up. It's that whole blank slate idea. And Jung pushes back against it as Pinker does. Yeah, it's really, it's just... How can you take anyone seriously when they say 100% of this complex thing is caused? You, you never do a univariate analysis. Multivariate is always the way to go. And sure, one of them might have a much higher proportion. I, I don't have a good intuition of what the, the between the, the two that are most popular to describe our, our psychology, our behavior, our identity is, is the, is our genetics or culture, nature versus nurture. Mm. And I, so I don't think it's 50% per se, and perhaps it varies more for people. Maybe some people are more defined by their genetics more or yeah. more defined by their culture. It's hard to say, but it's just laughable and you can see it so easily. I mean, laughable just with, to say that, that someone would be a blank slate or that we would all be blank slates. Yes. Mm. Or that it would be one or the other, that it was either mm. that it was completely genetic yeah. and you're just destined to have a certain personality or that it's completely cultural, that your right. culture informs you, that your your peers and your your family life informs who you are. And that scene, I think, uh, I think I got this example from Pinker. Maybe it was Peterson, but you parents see this all the time. They'll have kids, they'll raise in the exact same environment, they'll apply the same parenting techniques, and they have wildly different children. One of them is screaming all night. The other one is completely calm. Yeah, right. Came from the same parents in the same household, and yet responding very differently to the world that it finds itself in. Yeah. And if even at was... a very young age, um, I, mm -hmm. I, it's one of my favorite things to ask new parents about if they have more than one kid is, it's like, how early did you notice the difference? And it's, it's like weeks or days. It's, mm -hmm. it's incredible. They, they've yeah. come, they pop out and they already are like smiling more or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. nuts. Yeah. I, I, I have very, I, it's, it's got to be. It's got to be both. Yeah. And I think like the main point from this chapter that was quite new is, is, is translating that. Like I kind of accepted that with personality, but it seemed novel for Jung to describe symbols as being part of that. But that even goes mm. beyond individuals. I mean, it's at the yeah. level of individuals where these ideas arise, but... It seems like we have these collective symbols that are mm. familiar to anybody across any culture, perhaps, as yeah. well. Yeah. Well, I have, um, there's a part in the chapter that I am curious if it made more sense to you, because it kind of bounced right off my head, um, if you're okay with moving on to yeah, the new one. All right. So he has that um, story of uh, this this guy who pursues a woman sort of with uh, and, and, and won't stop pursuing her very persistently. And then at one point she bears her, her cancerous breast to him. And then he becomes a famous missionary. And this is some well-known 
person of history. Uh, his name is Lull, L-U-L-L. And, and he was saying that th this guy's obsession pursuing this woman was in some way a, how can I say, like he was motivated by something very deep within him, almost something archetypal, although I don't think that's really the right word, so that he would have this encounter um, and and then become a priest. But that must not be right, because that doesn't seem right. What? How did you read that, or how would you summarize that? Yeah, I'm, I, you mentioned that, and I realized it's more significant than I probably thought about at the time, or that it was less clear than I realized at the time. I, I read it, and I thought, oh, that's interesting. But now that you mention it, there's not a clear laid out logical progression so he's he pursues this woman it seems like amorously i think mm -hmm. that's the impression that i got mm -hmm. um, but she reveals that she has cancer and that makes him into a priest like why not a doctor right i think it matters that it was a priest mm. not a doctor well, or not just a kind of like disappointed lover or something like that yeah it seems like part of the story there was that he realized that that his pursuing was somehow base. I guess that's part of the implication I got is that he pursued this woman madly, and then and then she had breast cancer, and then he was like, "Holy shit! Like I need to change my life. Like what what was I doing being so consumed with this?" And then he went into the priesthood. That was sort of the impression I got, but it's still I still don't really feel like I understand I understand the point you is making. Perhaps an archetype that's there is death. Perhaps he was pursuing death as mm. represented by the cancer. And he says, I need to change my life to be oriented towards life. Mm. I doesn't quite fit in with the woman because she's a human being just like him. She's not mm. a symbol per se, but she symbolized something to him. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, that's a mystery. That's homework for the reader. You guys got to call in and let us know what the fuck that means. <laughs> um, I have a quote I'd like to read. Sure. Um, it's near the end of the chapter, and um, it's related to his idea. Well, okay, I'll read the quote first. The quote is, the motto, where there's a will, there's a way, is the superstition of modern man. I really liked that a lot. Did that stick out to you as well? No, I didn't notice it, but I actually find myself um, disagreeing with it instinctually mm. or, or by default. Right. Well, he, he said that just after saying that, um, I think he was making a point about how we were so logic focused. I don't know if he used this terminology exactly, um, but we find it difficult to explain our actions in anything other than conscious effort and willpower. And he's saying, yeah, we do have a lot of willpower and we can do some incredible things. Like one of his examples is like we can sit down and work for a long time just because we know we should logically. And we don't have to, we don't sort of stumble over a lot of symbolism and superstitions like the primitive man would. So that's, you know, we have that, um, but we frame everything in terms of willpower. And so for me, when he says that the phrase where there's a will, there's a way, is the superstition of modern man. I guess to me, it's almost like he's saying that is our uh, premise or like one of our axioms. We sort of have this assumption that if you have willpower to go and do X, Y, Z, then you can do it unless it's just straight up impossible. 
Um, yeah. That's, I guess now that you articulate it more, I do think I see what he's saying and he's saying something that's true, but it makes me think about how we also got something with this trade-off. Like, I'm glad that we have right. thought and can rationalize things and, and not do things based on superstitions, but because they will make our life better in a material sense. Right. Well, he doesn't and, say that it's wrong. He just says it's a superstition. And and this is also hmm. after he sort of has justified the superstitions of the past. You know, he says that word not in an entirely negative yeah. way. So Right. That's true. Yeah. I think it's my modern man balking at it. You know, huh. we, we we both read that book, uh, The Beginning of Infinity by David Deutsch, which mm. the, the premise of that book is, or one of the premises is that anything is possible if it doesn't break the laws of the universe. So right. Like any Spe- sort and his of point tech. there specifically is that we can invent anything or that we can learn anything that's not impossible. Right. We can invent the machine that invents the machine that mm. can do anything. Right. So long as it's not going faster than the speed of light or, mm. you know, having electrons in two places at once. Or I, I, don't, know, I don't know that many laws of the universe. But, <laughs> I right. think that second one is actually <laughs> legit. Right. There's like thermodynamics. Those are those are pretty solid ones. Mm. The uh, you can't you can't uh, create more energy than you put into a system. Right, right. But yeah, entropy increases, and so, um, so, and how does that connect then to um, the, where there's a will, there's a way? I just felt that I was trying to express that. I think that that's part of my the modern man part of me thing is like we, if there is a will, we can do it as mm-hmm. long as it's physically, materially possible. Then we can do it. But that's maybe not what motivates us. Perhaps that's more Jung's point. So we, and, that, and that also goes to ah, something that, that Hume right. talks about, which I think, yeah, definitely preceded Jung, where, uh, you know, we can never build, this maybe is a little bit of a tangent, but we can't build a moral system based on what we know to be true in the world. Like we know that there's gravity, we know that we mm. feel pleasure or we experience suffering. But you can't actually say, and therefore we should reduce suffering. Right. So it's like Hume argues that there's no logical, uh, you, you can't make that step um, rationally. The only way you can understand that is is subjectively. You can only be motivated by how things actually feel. And mm. it's a little bit more subtle than that. I'm having trouble articulating it right now, but you'll never ever be able to describe what is and then get to an ought of what, yeah. how it should be or how we should behave. Right. Based on, on rationality again, and sorry if I'm belaboring the point, but it can only, you can only be motivated by um, your, your feeling on the subject. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think you're onto something, something good there. Um, so I just want to see if I can connect it back to this quote. So the the motto, where there's a will, there's a way, is a superstition of modern man. I keep, I'm I'm just now thinking on that word will. He's like saying where there's a will, there's a way. And I think part of what we're talking about now is that the will doesn't come from somewhere um, logical necessarily. Uh, It at base, it's always going to lead back to some emotional or 
um, basic kind of desire that we want that's not logical. Um, and yeah, I almost wonder if Jung is talking more about when he says that that quote is the superstition of modern man. He's not saying it's wrong, but maybe part of what he's pointing to is that the will comes from somewhere else, though. I'm not sure. I think that is that is pretty close, if not exactly what he's trying to say. Hmm. But man, what a lot packed into a, a short sentence yeah. if we're analyzing it right. Yeah. Hmm. Well, I have one more um, really interesting point that I'd like to get into, but I've been going on my points. Did you have anything else you want to talk about? No, I think I kind of front-loaded all my <laughs> best ideas about this, so please okay. proceed. Um, I, it's, he makes this point near the end of the chapter, and I really like it. And I feel like I've heard versions of this idea elsewhere, too. Um, but he says, he, he basically says that um, we haven't really gotten rid of demons and gods. We just call them different things now. And I think the best, the, the thing that rings truest for me, the best example I can say of that is like being possessed by a demon, we would now call having a, a neurosis. I mean, it's so similar. You have a person who is doing something that they say they don't want to do and it's harmful or, or at the very least um, not productive. It's not helpful, but they can't stop themselves and they keep having to do it. In the past, we would simply call that a demon and we would try to get the demon exercised. And uh, it seems to me that we just call whatever that is, and it could be totally psychological with nothing mystical about it, but we used to call it demons and now we call it neuroses. And for me, it connects to this, this idea that um, I, I know I have heard this elsewhere, which is that uh, when you look at the mythical gods, especially when it's uh, pantheistic gods, so there's, you know, like the Roman or Greek gods where there's like a god of love and there's a god of war. Um, and, uh, and then also in tribal cultures where they have different spirits, um, those are, those represent the emotional, this emotional um, substructure that we were just talking about, what actually motivates us. And in the past we would say that the god Ares motivated me to do this and that because you felt a certain way. You literally, you could, it's almost in a way true to say, I felt that I was moved by the God Aries to do this and that. And the only difference and the only reason I think we would look back at that and say that's superstitious is because we just call that being mad or whatever. I think Aries is the God of war. Um, yeah. So we would just call that I was mad. So I did this thing. But if you think about it, that's almost saying exactly the same thing. I was, I, I was possessed by Aries. So I, I cut the guy's head off. Or you could say I was driven by rage. So I cut the guy's head off. It's almost exactly the same thing. Um, and so I thought that was really, I, I like that point a lot and it rings true for me, um, that we don't, we haven't gotten rid of demons and gods, but we, we, we call them different things and there's not, and I suppose the other difference is that we don't really see them as these, these beings outside of space and time that, you know, have all control. But to be fair, the Greeks didn't see it that way either. They saw the gods as very much in their lives, you know, and um, yeah, so I just thought that whole idea was really rich. That, see, I I like it, but I worry about the application of that idea because if I were to go into psychologists, I think I'd rather, if I was doing something bizarre and somewhat had an evil overtone, I think I'd prefer for the doctor to say, 
oh, your GABA receptors are all out of whack, mm. you know, or you need more monamines and I can give you this drug to adjust the, you know, how your receptors accept that sort of particular peptide, whatever, brain right. stuff. Right. I don't think it would be, what would be the implication of saying, well, you are possessed by a demon. So yeah. we need to do this ritual or you need to go to a spa. Like, you know, there may have been some use in that, just like placebos are useful, just doing something. Mm. It, you know, especially if it's spiritually aligned, if he takes a kind of spiritual journey to fight your demons, that can be useful. And I certainly have my reservations about what we can, about what kind of medication we should take that, that affects our brain. I think it helps millions of people. I, I, I'm for them, certainly. You know, mm. I would just be kind of wary because I I worry about the long-term effects. But that that's more, you know, medical beyond what we're trying to talk about here. I just... Well, but, but, but you are kind of saying, I mean, I don't think it's so irrelevant because you were saying um, you're sort of contrasting the idea, you know, on one hand, you could go to, a, let's just say, a professional of some sort. And the professional could either say you're possessed by a demon or they could say, you know, your monomemes or you need more monomemes or whatever that cool word you used was. Um, <laughs> and uh, so here's some pills. And, and so... So yeah, that definitely invites these ideas of, of our modern conception of, of medical. Um, we're, we're weighing those two together or against each other against each other. Yes, and and I think it's just my for me, the materialist view of the world makes the most sense that everything, including the most beautiful spiritual experience people have, their direct communication with God or just nirvana, I think all of that is amino acids, it's neurons firing. I don't think there's anything that's not material about it mm. that exists on some kind of plane. And, and you know, certainly reality is stranger than we can suppose, as, as the saying goes. So, so maybe there's something that we can't even really easily detect with our instruments materially, but I think it's all still confined within the universe and that there could be explanation. You will have this conscious experience if these trillion neurons fire in this way and mm. this is what your brain chemistry is like at that moment you are just bound to have this exact experience right well see i, I think this gets back to our conversation either last episode or the one before where i was explaining sort of why i'm opening up quite a bit more to spiritual ways of thought and, and really treating them actually it's true in a way that i i used to not do and that is that I, I don't in any way reject the scientific view, but I am now starting to see it as one of two frames that, and they both seem quite relevant. And so I, I have no issue at all with the idea that our brains are, let's say, completely described by chemical processes. Um, but in, in a way, maybe I shouldn't say completely described because um, this is a bit of a tangent. Um, I think it's this guy, Daniel Dennett. He writes, he's writing this book on consciousness and um, he has this um, illustration. He says, okay, you know, you can, you can build a computer out of dominoes. It, in theory, you can, you can build logic gates and stuff out of a, a long string of dominoes. And so let's imagine that you build a domino computer um, where uh, it calculates whether a given number is prime and you input the number by putting a, a certain number of dominoes at a certain place. And when you knock them over, that's like inputting the number 
that you're trying to take uh, to see whether it's prime. So let's say you put in the number 27 or is 27 prime. Okay, let's let's just say three because three is definitely prime. <laughs> um, you put in the number three, and at the end, that a domino falls over, and that domino falling over indicates that yes, it was prime. And so now, if somebody came into the room and they asked, "Why did that domino fall over?" You you could answer truthfully because the one behind it didn't fall over, idiot. And that's a true. Um, it's, it's a true answer, but it's not really what he asked. And it's not the most useful answer either. And it's not, I guess, crucially to my point, it's not the only relevant answer. And in fact, you could even say the more relevant answer is because three is prime. That's why the domino fell over. And so I think you can, that's how I sort of, I don't know, am comfortable with the idea that we could have a logical explanation that, that in some way is, com is complete. It's not missing anything. And yet we need more. We need more because like, why did you go punch that guy? And I could tell you because, uh, because he stole money from me. And like, that is a way better explanation actually than saying, because my neurons all fired and I, and I give you like a, you know, a thousand bajillion page readout of my, of my, you know, neuron, um, <laughs> status. My, my, so yeah that's i worry we lose i worry that it opens up some some danger for us as people but there i it must be true that like using the words heaven and hell to describe something is such a huge shortcut so you see mm. someone addicted to drugs that's homeless starving right you know like has sores is, is harassed by the wild dogs that person you could just say that they're in hell it's right. a much faster way of saying that so I do find useful, but then that well, word is so powerful. It has all these connotations that are spiritual that maybe actually still do apply, but I worry about people that then interpret it literally. I think it can only be interpreted figuratively. Yeah. And there will always be right. someone that is, you know, doing the opposite. Well, yeah, let me, so let me bring that back to this idea of demons then. So, you could go to a professional and maybe this professional is either a medical doctor or they're like a, maybe a priest or, or let's just say a cult leader or how would you say, we'll say a spiritual healer and um, shaman. Yeah. shaman. Okay. That's a good word. Yeah. And so the shaman will say um, you are possessed by a demon and that yeah, I think in the same way could be a shortcut. It could be like, okay, there is something that's bad and you don't really have control over it. And, um, and, you know, it, it, I think it's entirely plausible that if you have a subject and they have a choice of which doctor to go to, in some cases, they might actually be better off going to the shaman who will, who will, um, you know, do whatever it is they do to psychologically shock the person into some kind of new state of mind, rather than the medical scientist. And I'm certainly not saying all the time, I'm just saying, uh, arguably, you could see that this might be true in some cases, uh, whereas the medical doctor would instead just try to talk about, you know, um, chemical balances in the head and this and that and, and not even mention the idea that like, dude, you seem fucked up. Like he won't ever say anything that high level. He'll try to correct it with chemicals and that might not be any kind of solution. You know, maybe this guy um, had some life altering event happen to him when he was young or just recently. And the chemicals is just, you know, adding chemicals to the brain is just so far down the wrong path in a way that the shaman wouldn't really err in that way, you know. So, um, yeah, I, I, and I guess just to, just to conclude all that, 
again, you, you can look at the subject and try to give him a sort of reductionist scientific modern medical prognosis with a suggestive course of action, or you could give him a more spiritually based um, shaman, or maybe not even shaman, maybe they just go to Jung and Jung says, you know, whatever Jung says. Um, and I think that they, I think that in some way I feel that they're incomplete without the other. It's like we need both and one's not enough. I agree. We do need both. And maybe there's some kind of uh, interesting doctor visit, let's say doctor slash shaman visit, where you go to the doctor, he says, you are being possessed by a demon, you know, take two of these. Oh, mm. by the way, if you look this up online, it'll talk about the monamines and receptors and so forth. Mm. Like it'll have, but let's just save a lot of time and say, let's say this in the shortest way possible. Like you are not right. You're being mm. possessed by something evil, mm. even though what we mean by evil is some neurological disease or some kind of latent trauma. Mm. I don't, you know, like someone that's, not a doctor, maybe we'll have an understanding of those terms. Maybe we'll understand what cancer is and so forth, but it might actually be faster if everyone adopted a symbolic language, but then treated things materially. Yeah. Not that that's what we're trying to describe, but you know, I can just sort of imagine a world that combined both of those elements successfully, the best of both. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like a huge step in that direction would be if people were just more comfortable with symbols they didn't understand, you know, talking in symbols and saying things that felt true without all the time needing to have it feel like it's backed up by um, 100% firm grounding all the way down to logic. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm lingering. Well, I'm not sorry, but I'm <laughs> lingering because <laughs> there's, there's a really important point there. And I think it ties all the way back to Hume, but you know, that, or maybe even the postmodernists have a better handle on it, which is, can we know anything that's true? Does any word mean anything at all? Mm -hmm. You kind of do have, as annoying as they are, they have a really good point. Yeah. And uh, that's not a solved problem. How can we know anything at all? Right. And you just can't get there you know, you have to use words approximately and proportionally. Mm. And these studies suggest after peer review, yeah, like there's always uncertainty. Right. Whereas certain words, symbols, you know, can incorporate that uncertainty perhaps and, and be more useful as a result. Yeah. I, I really like the way you just put that. They can incorporate the uncertainty. And, and the idea that was in my head as you were talking is, is that they, it's almost like they're more honest about the uncertainty as well. Or it's like a safer way to handle it. It's like a symbol. If you and I have a conversation that's deeply symbolic, well, for example, when we share our dreams, that's a conversation that is, in fact, deeply symbolic. Where we're actually, um, of course, then we try to bring it out into more rational language. But at least for part of that conversation, it's um, it's uh, it's a conversation that we actually couldn't have with with more logical language we can only have it with symbols and so using symbols lets you have those kinds of conversations it, it let, yeah it i think i'm repeating myself now but I, I do like what you said about it incorporates the uncertainty and for me it's almost like it's in an honest way or in a, a deliberate way almost hmm. well yeah i'm pretty great at saying things <laughs> <laughs> very um, humble as well
Yes. Well, I'm ready to move on to dreams if you are. Yes, I'm actually, uh, yes, I'm, I'm embarrassed. My dream is not that good. It's just short, actually. It's fine. But um, I'm just really afraid that I'm not going to get a good grade this time. That's, that's where my fear is coming from. I already know what your grade is, so don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. That is really comforting. That's the comforting <laughs> nature of a deterministic universe. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll go. Okay, yeah, go ahead. First, um, I actually had two pretty short dreams, but I'll just read the one that's more interesting. <clears throat> okay, here it is. I'm sleeping on a cot in a dark room. I hear murmurings in another room that seems strange. As I return to sleep, the door opens and people start to come into my room. They file in and gradually fill the entire space. Alarmed at this, I stand and try to leave the room. But the last person that enters looks me in the eye and tells me the bad news. A coworker has died. Someone new. All the people in the room are coworkers, although I do not recognize them, including the one telling me the news. I'm, I am suddenly... In an embrace with two people, we have each other's arms over each other's shoulders. And then I wake up. Hmm. Okay. All right. So now I, I think last time um, we, one of us had the dream, the other one tried to interpret it. But I think maybe a better approach is rather, I think you should lead with what you think that means. And then maybe I'll ask clarifying questions. Yeah, I'm still, I feel no better at analyzing my dreams than on day one. Maybe I'm a little more open to certain ideas. And I've said this probably every week, but I think psychologically, I see, have a lot of death on my mind because of coronavirus. I think I look at the charts, if not every day, then every other day. Um, and... I have very odd interactions these days with my coworkers that I that I think are interesting, um, or, or maybe there's something there in terms of I no longer see my coworkers. I, I kind of interact with them virtually through emails and occasionally through um, you know virtual conferences, but that's very different from being in the same room physically. Far less information, and it's really more oriented towards work. But I get less information about them as people so i thought that was kind of felt similar to um the way that i knew that everyone in the room filing in was a coworker, even though i didn't recognize any of them hmm. as if i've lost touch i think i think and I, I don't think this is the right way to interpret it because Jung says we shouldn't use kind of an emotionally charged way of thinking but i suspect that is manifest my worry about returning to work and having someone actually die there, mm. uh, you know, someone older and, and all of us then mourning that person, you know, if it's, if this is my unconscious compensating saying, Hey, don't, you know, fight, resist, don't go to work yet. Especially if you can do your work remotely. Mm. Anyways, that, that sort of conveniently lines up what I think consciously. So I actually don't think that's quite right because otherwise, why would my unconscious need to compensate for something I already think? But right. that just seems to fit well. I, I don't know. Okay. Any thoughts? Well, um, I'm not sure. So I didn't, I didn't, I didn't uh, have the understanding that this, I guess it sounds like you see the compensatory, compensatory, compensatory. Okay. seems like you seem to, you see the 
compensating function as uh, more like more of a prime um, function of dreams. I didn't mm -hmm. interpret it as like that was the main thing. Um, although I, I suppose Jung does say does say that um, fairly frequently. So that's one thought I had. Um, the other, I'm curious if you could talk more about, so you mentioned this this time, and I know you've mentioned it before, although this time I can't remember. Okay, so you said that you want to sort of avoid um, interpreting the, the things that are emotionally charged. And and you've said that before, but this time I, I was, I, the thought I was like, well, wait, where was that said? I don't really, because I don't feel the same reluctance in myself when I think about my own dreams. So could you explain more um, of where that idea came from? I mean, I know from, from the text, but... Yeah, I think Jung described that, or at least I inferred that the most logical, the one that seemed like you try to fit it into your conscious life and you're like, oh, I've been thinking about this, so I must... Mm. That makes sense... Uh, is is often wrong. Okay. I, I think that seems like actually a pretty foundational idea, or one of the ones that surprised me that I incorporated mm. into all this is that your unconscious wouldn't necessarily be telling you uh, things that you already know. Right. You know that would be a waste of energy, but it's it's trying to warn you of something. It's trying to give you information. Uh, yeah, so you don't think that's the primary? What do you have a sense of what the primary point is of dreams? The purpose of dreams? I, you know, I guess if, if not to, I guess I see them as a bit more random in source. I, and I, you know, I don't know how much of this is coming from the text and how much is just coming from my own thoughts. But it seems. I mean, I definitely think there's a lot of truth in what Yung is saying, and I really don't want to. Um, disagree with really any of it but i but i have had this thought while reading like that i sort of suspect it's a little bit more random than he's giving credit for you know i've had dreams in fact most dreams i have just don't seem symbolic um uh and i think that i i don't think they're as purposeful at least as as the impression i get from the text i i think that they're certainly capable of holding really um, significant symbolism. Um, but I don't think, I don't necessarily think it's something that is designed to happen every time, or maybe a better way to say it is I don't think every dream is necessarily latent with symbolism. I mean, probably, okay, probably technically it is because they come from somewhere in your brain and you have this dream in front of you. Well, where did it come from? So you could probably argue that in a technical sense, it's always coming from some kind of symbolism. But, um, well, I'm kind of losing my train of thought now. What was your question specifically? Well, let me talk more to what you're okay. saying. I, I wanted to ask what you think the purpose of dreams are, if not to mm. your unconscious compensating for something that it sees in your conscious behavior. Uh, and then you started talking about how it's more random, perhaps, and not always necessarily important mm -hmm. for you to know. And there, the, I, I was talking with someone about this, how they told me how they when they eat spicy food, they dream more. So oh. that doesn't seem like a significant trigger, right? right? Why would spicy food then have your unconscious, like now is the time to reveal something important <laughs> to you. So clearly there is some level of randomness, you know, maybe we're just, is, well, I'll have to think about it. Is, is 
it true to say that every dream is significant? You know, mm. I think that may be an assumption that I made that that may just not be the case because yeah, so many dreams are kind of dull. In fact, sometimes I have dreams that are they don't feel like there's they're just completely normal. Like I'm eating breakfast right. or something and then I wake up. Like very little happens. It's completely normal. It was telling the future that you would eat breakfast that morning. <laughs> yeah, like there's no that's not useful. Right. Uh, so there must be some element of that. And and just and even if it is like a cognitive machine, right, it can probably be wrong. Right. Right? Right. Okay. So yeah, no, I actually I, I maybe have to be less uh, intent on on kind of pushing symbolism onto it if it's not clear. I think that's probably the right approach to start with that, but maybe it's not always the level of importance that one might expect or the level of significance. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it seems like Jung's suggestion of um, assuming that there is a coherent story there is probably a good approach. But uh, yeah, well, I give that dream a, um, I'm going to give it a B minus. Okay. Yeah. It was... Okay, I'll talk to you after this podcast. And, uh... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, um, let me get my dream up here. Unless you have any other closing thoughts on that one. Actually, can I just tell you another dream that I had? We don't have to get yes. into it. I just... I just have it written down. It's kind of yeah, it's let, much shorter. Let's do it. So I'll just read it. So a baby is on fire, not fully, but small flames. A child picks it up and runs to the second story to drop the baby in icy water. It occurs to me in the dream that the baby did not need to be dropped from the second story, but that felt like a conscious thought. So this was like part of a dream where uh, I saw you know baby on fire <laughs> and a child runs, even though he could drop the baby into icy water, Runs to the second story to drop it in the water that he ran by. <laughs> like and from I a window or something. I just remarked on it because, what's that? Like from a window? Like he runs up and drops it out of yeah, the window? Yeah, okay. from a window. Okay. And I remember what was odd about it was I felt like I was feeling more conscious towards the end right as I was waking up because I was analyzing the dream oh, as yeah. it was happening. Yeah. But it, because it was such a shard of something larger, I didn't want to. Right. Make that my graded dream. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. No, that was that's interesting. Well, um, what does the baby symbolize? I I am feeling an urge to be cheeky and, and make up some silly symbolism symbolism for the for the baby on fire. But uh, my immaturity to... is on fire. <laughs> is that good or bad if your immaturity is on fire? I don't know. Hmm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, you ready for my dream? Yes. Okay. I'm traveling with my girlfriend and we're in a queue similar to that at an airport with some kind of customs official at the end of the queue. He's talking or kind of yelling loudly in a language I don't understand, but this seems normal and I'm not stressed about understanding him. There's a time skip in the dream and we have arrived to a room we are considering staying in. It's a huge room and there's a quality something beyond just being nice. It feels futuristic somehow. It's very open. Um, there's a huge floor to ceiling window that takes up an entire wall of the room. Uh, it seems almost curved outward, which just adds to the futuristic feel. Looking out of the window, we are high on a hill and looking out into a similarly futuristic scene. And this doesn't seem like futuristic, like flying cars and stuff, but it just, it's, I don't know, it's, 
it's something in between just like really posh, like fancy, like um, Shanghai or something where it's just everything looks nice. And then it also just seems like it looks like it's in the future. Um, it's early morning and it is only now getting light outside. I turn on the light to the room, but it fades on very slowly. I understand that this is because of the culture here. Buildings are required to have their lights fade on slowly rather than snap on for the benefit of the beauty of the city as a whole. So like as I'm looking out on this beautiful city, um, like there's no lights suddenly turning on because this the regulations or whatever of this place require that uh, all lights must fade on slowly. It's just an understanding I have in my head. Uh, and I think there was more to the dream, but that's as much as I could remember by the time I got up to write it down. Okay. Well, what do you think it means? Well, I mean, it's, it's, uh, there's definitely an element of future, like, and travel. Uh, you know, the travel is consistent, even though there's a time skip, we were at an airport and we ended up at this, this hotel. Um, and I'm with my girlfriend and, you know, we've actually been talking about our future together and, um, I'm leaving South Africa here in a matter of months. And so that, you know, that causes an uncomfortable conversation to start rearing its head. Um, and so I think that is sort of referencing that thought process and also the work that I'm doing here could it could turn out to be really lucrative and it could sort of catapult me into a new mode of living, you know, where I'm uh, making a lot of money and doing work I'm really happy with. And so I, and so I'm very much looking forward to a bright future. And I think that is why the place that I arrived at was so appealing. It was like, and, and partially, you know, the work I'm doing, I, I have, hopes that it will change the world. And so maybe that's part of it too, that I hope to arrive at a place that's a little bit in the future, you know, in this nice future, um, not only for me, but like the world I'm in is is somehow um, has, has progressed to a better, you know, slightly better version of itself. So yeah, that's, that's what I think of the symbolism there. I... Gosh, I was trying to think of a joke this whole time about saying it was something about the past, but just forget it, okay? Okay. Um, so it, I think you've got it. Yeah, I think that you probably have some anxiety about getting going to an airport. You know, maybe that's manifested by someone yelling really loudly. That's always uncomfortable. Mm. Um, but it seems like you're unconscious telling you that that will work out well like leaving south africa mm. getting on a plane going to a more developed country a more beautiful country perhaps that because you've described some like sort of unpleasant city design aspects mm. in south africa so someplace that's that's kind of less uh like that yeah which could be europe or it really could be shanghai or something like that and it seems like it'll go out well i don't see us clearly the um your career stuff hmm. playing into it maybe i mean maybe that's driving it i don't see any connection it's more about how i expect or hope that my career will sort of change into a new orbit you know relatively soon where, where i'm living a, a more luxurious lifestyle it's it's so it's more about the lifestyle switch caused by the career work rather than the career itself it's not really about the work i suppose at all I see. It's about the impact of the work, both on my life and uh, and maybe the world around me. Although I'm not sure about that 
latter part. Okay. And and I, I just kind of, I mean, my first thought about your girlfriend and you guys have to make a decision is I think your unconscious telling that you want her to come with you. Mm. Like that's what you genuinely want, you know, regardless of what's, what's convenient and what's practical. I think that's what right. is being shown there. Right. Yeah. No, I think so. Okay. Um, what you going to stamp on the paper? Great, yeah. I would say. <laughs> I won't even edit out that silence. That's going to stay. <laughs> um, gosh, I'm going to say B minus. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. <laughs> It's the only way for us to maintain our friendship, I think, at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Separate but equal. That's right. Okay. okay. Well, nice. I think I'm all out of words. Yeah. How about you? Me too. I, I only have enough to conclude this episode and then I will be out. So, <laughs> all right. Okay, thanks for tuning in, guys. And uh, we will see you next time.